Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the M&M Podcast. This is Michael Gallagher. Uh, Miles Blaney. And David Crichton Offord. And we're here for the very first podcast, although it's number eight in the series, it's the very first podcast for 2020. 2020. Wow. Woo, woo, woo. We've done it. Still looking for sponsors. <laughs> hey, we're looking for sponsors into our second year. All right, so we have a very special guest here. Obviously, David is uh, very versed in these things, and we'd like to have a conversation about information security. Yeah. So, so David, do you want to just tell us what you do at the university in the first place? Right, okay. So my role at the university in name is Senior Information Security Consultant to the university. Wow. Wow. That's a good yeah, one. Basically, because jack of all trades doesn't look quite as cool. <laughs> <laughs> so... A lot of what we do is we look at different bits and pieces that are coming in, different projects, new pieces of work, research, and we have a look for what security controls they have in place, how they're looking after people's data, how they lock it down and going, right, here's where your risks are. Here are the processes you really need to think about and look at. And here are some of the things you can be doing to help lock down some of these things a bit better. Mm. So you're so, talking, so sorry to interrupt you there, David. You're talking about data controls and access. So are these things that people just don't think about right now um it's a very mixed bag we've got some areas where people are really really good and on point mm -hmm. and want to do it right and we have some areas where people go in going yeah i'll just collect a whole load of data and keep it on my laptop and <laughs> no one can get in my laptop that's fine <laughs> which is generally where the hyperventilating and my eyes shrinking stress tiny pins <laughs> yeah coming. yeah i can imagine the stress is quite high in your job then <laughs> It certainly can be, but there's a lot paying off for it because information security as a whole is A, really important, but also within the academic space, incredibly varied. Mm. So I came previously from government where your department does this, this is what it's like, here's the framework you worked to, it was very regimented. But really intense, really good, you learnt a lot, but there were so few sort of like odd edge cases or bits and pieces you'd end up looking at, it could get a little bit boring compared to here. Mm. So this has definitely been a really interesting place to come into on the back of that. And to pick up on that kind of edge cases as well, so I'm guessing you're talking about the kind of variation of research that goes on here. Most certainly. <laughs> so are we, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. Are we talking specifically about research data or are we talking about different, any data that the university is producing as part of their normal work any data at all research data has a value and set of controls it needs all of its own which sit within the ethical agreements for collecting research data and how that works and so they have a much more stringent process but literally all data needs to be secured in some way and this is based on the really really big information security principles mm -hmm. which are confidentiality integrity and accessibility mm. cia triad or we can't call it the CIA triad anymore because <laughs> the CIA kept getting upset. Yes. <laughs> That's great. I, wish that, I honestly wish that weren't true. <laughs> but basically the idea is data has to be accessible. If you can't get to your data and you can't use it, it's worthless. Mm. Integrity of data is your data shouldn't be being changed or degrading or having things go wrong with it. You need your data to be reliable. Mm. And confidentiality mm. is, of course... Your data should only be seen by the people who you want to see it. Okay. That's interesting. So rely, just to pick up on a point there, reliability, you're saying the data is what you want it to be when you access it. Can you give us an example? Are we talking about degradation of data? We're we talking about formatting and these types of um, things over a course of time? Or? Yeah, that is actually in part a security concern. It's why we're so concerned about backing things up properly oh. and moving systems properly from one thing to another. It's why one of the risks we tend to look at is that a given piece of software will stop being supported anymore and that can then lead to problems. 
but it's also things where you have malicious actors whose role is not necessarily to steal anything, but just to mess with it. Hmm. So this comes a lot of the time when we get things like hacktivism. Okay. So they just want to muck about it to try and wreck us in a way. <laughs> yeah, they just want to change and mess with things, and that can cause a whole load of problems. Um, it draws attention to their cause. Or the other one is if someone gets into research data or something goes wrong, uh -huh. you can corrupt one piece of research data and that research basically has to be thrown out and you can lose years of work. See, that's that, that's what I was thinking in my head about that kind of degradation is, is about, you know, if you're relying on a data set there that does, it's been completely wrecked and that's somebody's work that's all got into that and their time and money that's been given to them to do that as well. Yeah, that's basically. all down the tree. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Mm. Um, so I think... I think you kind of touched on the points about why is it important. So, and I think I just want to ask a question for the two kind of areas, okay? So, why is it important that information security there is for the university perspective, the first one, and then from a, a user, from me using systems and all that, why is it important to have information security there? Well, from the university's perspective, we have a couple of major incentives. One is the legal one where if we have problems with personal data, you then run into things like the GDPR, the, the recently renewed Data Protection Act, mm -hmm. as well as other things such as PECR, which is to deal with the privacy of electronic communications. Yes. And those get really, really nasty, and there are big fines, and it just destroys the reputation of your organisation. But on the other side, we also have a whole load of information that we need in order to do our day-to-day -day business, so, for example, if finance went down, no one could get paid, nothing could get processed, we wouldn't be able to do most of our work. If HR went down, similar problems. Mm. If we lost access for, to example, to Euclid, we wouldn't really be able to run exams, matriculate students. Our entire business relies on our ability to process data. Mm -hmm. If that becomes compromised in any major way, mm -hmm. we have to fall back on pen and paper, and that has a huge impact on our ability to continue to do what it is that we do. And, it, and so, so pick up another point there, you said like pen and paper. So maybe 15 years ago, these systems were pen and paper based. But now they've kind of evolved to say it's all digitized, it's all, you know, it's all stored up there in, in ones and zeros. And the reliance on that is now key for the university to ensure that it actually works. Absolutely. Um, so, so that's from the university perspective. From a user's perspective, why should I care about information security? Because so much of your life is online <laughs> and you can't escape. <laughs> Basically, so much of your life is online. The government holds data on you in online databases, mm. there's social media, mm. there's your work will do so. Basically, your whole life is now dispersed across all these different data systems. So information security should be quite important to you. Yeah. Now, that's not necessarily on stuff that you handle. You have to understand where the boundary is. You can control what's working on your laptop, what's happening with that. Can people get into your email account? Are you using secure passwords? Are you not reusing passwords? Because that is by far one of the worst behaviours you can have. <laughs> and how you then work from there. Now, it gets a little bit sort of tricky when you go, right, okay, I'm going to push all this stuff out to someone else because you then have to trust them. Mm -hmm. 
So people go, yeah, I've got all my data on the cloud. It's really secure because they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's like, great. I'm, I love that you trust them so much. <laughs> <laughs> Who's them? <laughs> well, them are usually big players such as Amazon, Google, Microsoft, mm -hmm. just all the big sort of cloud storage players or online email providers. It's like, yeah, I'll just give you all my data. Oh, yeah, I run all my email through Google. And, you know, that's totally fine. They don't read all my email. No. It's like, have you read what they're allowed to do with your data? So, <laughs> and I think that comes on to, like, one of the points that we've got is about... The, so there's legislation around these things to protect people, obviously, okay? Um, but as someone who, and, you know, you'll do the same, reads this legislation sometimes and then read how people implement that and when I say people I mean uh, companies like you talked about Google and we've already I think about Jeremy Knox on before talking about um, how certain companies would create a was it an AI god it was some kind of document that they all said they all couldn't agree on but they all uh, it was more kind of bled into the ethical side of how we use data and they all kind of they, they I think they count they think the term that Jeremy uses whitewash it to make it work for them or where it's really bad for everybody else. Yep. But I think there's a lot of le legislation out there and you know from a from a, a, a person on the street is it is that information easy to to get to? Is it easy to understand or you know are people can people understand it and are people just kind of going yeah like you say all my information's over here. I like this company because it's got nice colors in their name. It must be okay. I think the answer to that one is, is depends who's writing the information. <laughs> so the government stuff, by design, has to be quite easy to understand. Yes. So if you go, for example, to the Information Commissioner's website and go, well, what are my rights regarding my data? Yeah. They're very good at laying that out in big, fat bullet points and going, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Mm -hmm. Individual companies tend to be... <laughs> uh, they tend to vary a bit more. I'll be generous here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, from, from my experience anyway, I think some of the language that a company will create in a privacy policy for interpretation is very open sometimes. And it's interesting that they're, you know, they should be all clear. I think there's, I think in, in, um, in some uh, government policy, I think they're saying that all this information should be clear and easy to interpret by, you know, someone on the street. But reading some of them, like I, I can't I won't name any companies, but I've read one privacy policy that was 44 pages long. Yep. And you're just like, what? What's going on here? By the end of 44 pages, I think I've fallen asleep five times. Mm. Yeah, and that's something I do as a career choice. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> but yeah, it does feel that way sometimes. So when you see someone who's actually got it really right, and helps to understand what it is that they do. Now... As we move to smaller and smaller microservices and things that do much smaller things, mm -hmm. they're better at it. Mm -hmm. So a huge behemoth like, you know, our Microsoft's our Google, yes, Amazon, yes. who do tons of stuff, their privacy policies will be huge and rambling because oh, they yes. do so many things and basically swallow up so many other functions. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you read the privacy policy for a company who does, you know, I don't know, language transcription. Mm -hmm. and that's the one thing they do mm -hmm. they tend to find it much easier to write what it is they will do with the data <laughs> how they will handle it and how they will get it out the door <laughs> so yeah. when people come to information security going can we use this thing is it safe there's there's always a big intake of breath <laughs> so and i think it so and it and it kind of harps back to you know in in education we do like adopting large uh we, we like using uh large vendors, large platforms, because they're established, we know other institutions use them already, we feel a kind of warm, cosy feeling, um, and uh, there are privacy agreements that, 
said already, we've, we've looked at and had lots of hums and hams about are always a bit of a nightmare because they do so much. Yeah. They try and cover us, they try and cover everything, they cover every kind of odd aspect that might be, you know, in, a, in an assessment, they try and cover 20 variations of it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a nightmare. But I, I think you've, you know, control of data you've said twice now. And uh, so, and I think it's an interesting thing. And, I, and we have, in previous podcasts, talked about um, data control and things like that. We've touched on them. So, and people kind of, you know, what, if you could say to me right now, or you could give some advice to somebody right now about controlling their data, what would you say to somebody, like a student or somebody on the street about, you know, you know, are you checking what you use or do you read the privacy terms? Because I tell you what, when I'm looking at a website and I really want to get a recipe for something and it pops up with that cookie thing, I'm like, oh, get out of my face. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a whole load of different things you can be doing. One is actually read those cookie policies or at least rely more on the websites that have those cookie policies that let you go, actually, I want to reject all or keep some and give you a little bit of granularity. So I, for instance, will always want to turn off marketing cookies, but actually some cookies for analytics, I know, help websites out and mm -hmm. I'm slightly less precious about it. Mm -hmm. The other thing people can do is actually just take a bit of an audit. <laughs> Look at what data you have, where you've put it, who you've got it with, how many different websites you have accounts with mm. and go, right, should I start closing down my accounts with some of these? Will I ever use them again? Because... All of that is exposure from an information security perspective. So even if you're really good at security, all those guys have usernames, details for you, every mm. bit of information you've given them about you, they have. And if it's some web forum you were once on 10 years ago and hasn't really had any security updates since because it's for a video game that no one really cares about anymore, mm. Well, when that gets knocked over, that can blow back on you. And this is it. And I think it, it's like your digital footprint. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? I think it's something that um, it's it's weird because my my eleven year old uh, who I who's just got a phone uh, at the end of last year, I annoy on a on a very regular basis about digital footprint and access and making sure that um, you know just making him understand that what he's doing and and how he can come back to haunt you pretty quickly uh, in that environment. Um, but yeah, so I think it's and and. And we're talking about there the legal aspects of, of, of data and data protection and information security. All right, so picking up on the ethical discussion as well, can you talk a little bit about uh, the difference between the ethics, these codes of conduct that people agree to or don't agree to versus compliance versus a legal framework? Okay, so legal frameworks are basically, this is what the government with their massive hitting stick say that you have to do. And there's going to be a whole load of, blowback from me saying something like this but <laughs> legal doesn't necessarily mean ethical it's literally just a framework this is what we agree is how we should do things and the law then will hit you if you don't do it now frameworks are slightly different frameworks tend to be a little bit more flexible they're things we agree within an industry so for example where we go we want to do things like iso 2701 which is a certification you can have for areas of a business or a system regarding risk management then you go through that, you get certified, and you're working within a framework. So you can still have the occasional thing that sits outside of that as an exception, and there are processes to handle that kind of thing. But when it comes to ethics of things, are we doing good things? That doesn't 
really come into a lot of these decision-making processes. Now, a lot of people in information security want to be doing good things because protecting people's data and making them safe and making things work is a good thing to do. At least I really hope so by this point. <laughs> Otherwise, I've chosen the wrong job. <laughs> so we tend to work on the basis that, you know, we are the good guys. But again, it's a case of what kind of organisations you work for, what they're doing and how you then react to that. So mm. I've really enjoyed working in public sector and academia because I can generally you know, hold my head high and go, I'm working for probably the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Rightly or wrongly, we think we are. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'd say we are. Let's say if I worked for an arms manufacturer, I might be doing good work securing their data and everything like that and stopping it going to third parties who may be even more nefarious than my employer. Mm. So I'm working legally and within frameworks but is what I'm doing ethical? Well, that's up to me. And I, and I think that's a really, it's a really difficult space because, you know, um, you know, thinking ahead now about the tools that we're seeing or exploring or hearing about in the news on a daily basis, you know, um, and how they use certain technologies, okay? So we were talking briefly there about like um, biometric data, yep. about facial recognition, okay? So you could say that, okay, that's... Um, in some use cases, biometric data is useful and it is beneficial. In some use cases, it is definitely not. And you'd have to argue then saying, well, that's a great space for that whole area as well, because you have to say, well, for this person, it might be useful, but for person B, it may not be, it might be intrusive. So this is the, and I think this is the kind of, you know, thinking ahead now, how we're, we're running into this future about uh, technology adoption and looking, you know, as we look at education, saying artificial intelligence is the big thing that gets bounded about in education, about all these beautiful models of, of adoption of AI, and um, you know, is it ethically right to do it in those areas as well? Oh, that that's a really tricky one. <laughs> it, it's generally in terms of how you pace things and how you frame them. Mm. So being ethical means actually taking the time to go: is this something we should be doing? For just leaping in and doing it. So, for example, with biometrics, if you were not really caring about whether it was ethical or not, you would slap it down, you'd force everyone to use it, you'd collect all this lovely biometric data, and away you go. Yeah. An ethical concern would be, wait, what if people don't necessarily want to give biometric data? Or is there you know, a wider thing that could be done with this biometric data where we're holding it? Mm -hmm. And this is where we get into things like facial recognition being used for protests and whatnot. Yeah. Facial recognition. Great as a sort of secure way to get into your phone. That's relatively low impact. Facial recognition when you're at a protest and then being used to potentially infringe on your right to protest. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. And, and I can give you, a, a, you know, uh, an example, because I think it's, you know, I think at the um, Swansea card football match recently um, in November time, I think it was, uh, the police used facial recognition cameras on anybody walking into the stadium yep. and uh the police advised them the police said we have you know dear attention policies in place blah 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 and the fans were like well it doesn't matter about that i'm not being given the option whether i want you to take my face or not and i think the police at the time have eyes yeah we'll, we'll take a picture of you and we'll then we'll check it against our database and within 20 seconds your picture's deleted and it takes another one again and you're like but Nobody has an option. Well, this is some of the, I think it's picking up on some of the, if you're if you're taking that model and using it in education, uh, JISC had this 
this narrative of a, of a possible future, the smart campus where they had facial recognition technology. This was a, yeah. a this was an ima <laughs> imaginary of tech use, but this the, the facial recognition uh, software that would track how students were responding in class, whether or not they were going to class as they walked across campus. This is the one moving in class as well. Yeah, it was it, it was largely just an imaginary, and I think it re received a lot of rightful. Questions. Okay, criticism, <laughs> criticism but questions. ultimately there was this idea that seamlessly this data would be transported to home office and and as these students for tier two visas and tier four visas would, would be sub suspect to attendance policies and these yep. types of things. So all these things become tied together in this datafied world. Mm. And so that was quickly, like that was an imaginary of tech use that was quickly hopefully, I think, mm. uh, uh, shot down. Yeah, I think I, I think I remember seeing quite a few of the tweets and I think I've seen the article been circulated recently yeah. as we well. We use it in all our presentations for what not, how not to do this. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, that perfectly illustrates the legal, but is it ethical? Yeah. Because that's working with the Home Office to make sure that the law is obeyed, that this and that and the other. But is it ethical? Are we, you know, just really violating people's right to privacy? How is that then balanced? Because you've got these two quite heavy legal impetuses. One, making sure things are enforced versus making sure that people still have their rights to privacy and whatnot. Which is why the constant questioning of what rights do people have, mm. how do we handle that data, what are the police allowed to do and not to do, mm. what are the intelligence services allowed to yeah, do and yeah. allowed not to do, yeah. gets very, very heated. Mm. And, and it's also, you know, thinking about it, you know, all these things that we're talking about, they need data to work, they need... Machine learning needs to have historical data for something like learning analytics to be able to predict things, okay? Yeah. And, you know, uh, learning analytics prediction models are, some people love them, and it's absolutely fine, um, but they need to have access to tons of data. And as soon as, if there's, and this is the kind of quandary, and, I, and, and I'm, you know, I'll think about China, and, and there, if you get a new SIM, you have to have a picture of your face loaded up for the central government to have access to, and you're like, well, but why? Because they want to create data. They want to build and build and build out their machine learning so they can do more and more with their data so they can figure things out. Because, you know, China and AI is a bit, it's their number one thing right now. Mm -hmm. So if we start saying, if we put restrictions in there saying, okay, you can't collect this data or that data, you know, is that, does that kind of reduce the credibility of the things that we're using that rely on that data? It's it's a it's it's, it's, a it's yeah and, it's, and I think <laughs> it's, it's no easy one. But then again, it comes into it comes into the ethics of it again yeah. by saying what's that you know what's the benefit and it comes it should come down the end. Yeah. I'll come back to where sort of that sits in terms of the law now. Yeah. And sort of where we are currently in terms of where we may well be going forward. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, if we want to collect data on people, we are obliged to let them know yeah. that we're doing it as best we can. We are obliged to give them a privacy notice going. We're collecting data. This is what we'll do with it. Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. And we still have to give choice. This may well change. <laughs> now, whether that's for good or bad, it's not entirely up to me to decide. Unfortunately, I'm but one citizen among many. But we, we go into this kind of <laughs> sky-fi territory yeah. where people just don't have the choice anymore. Exactly. Well, that's a, I think we were having a little bit of a conversation about the teaching aspect of it, and I think that kind of plays into what you're describing. When, as a as a teacher in an online space, when you're using this ed tech and you're and you're putting students, uh, you, some might call it coercion, largely because you're asking students to go into these spaces, 
that they may or may not otherwise have gone into based on the parameters of the course. Mm -hmm. right? So you're exposing them to certain things. So why, I guess the intersection of the personal and the university at this point, why is it necessarily better to put them in quote-unquote safe university, ed tech kind of space? Yeah. And also how will that affect us as a university, as you know, a country full of universities? Because if people go, right, okay, I'm thinking of coming and studying in the UK, but I'm going to be, you know, monitored by, you know, cameras watching me, recognising my face and everything like that. Tell you what, maybe I'll just go to, like, Germany or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think there's a, there's a use case that came out, and I think it was um, some institution in America where they're all going to, all the dorms were going to have Amazon Alexas in them. And I know other institutions in the States have this. Yeah. But the students said, we don't want them in our rooms anymore. Yes, and they asked for them all to be removed, yeah. because it is. It's it's, you know, it's they've not asked for them. They've not opted into it. Mm -hmm. They're just there. That's they can right. go in and they can unplug them, obviously. But I think it's a stance to say, well, no, I don't want you collecting my data when I'm snoring. That's right. Well, I think there's a, there's there's some some bits there too. When I so I teach fully online. Mm -hmm. I don't have a, a quote unquote physical space that I I'm, I'm going into a classroom. Even if I were, obviously they would have lecture recording in there, and they would have yeah. some yeah. all these different things. So I'm just by default exposing students and are putting students into digital spaces that may or may not be surrounded by re like a regime of surveillance around it, right? So there's a datafication kind of engine around every space I'll put my students in. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, rightly or wrongly, just with my pedestrian idea of what, what is happening with the data, I will say, no, use Microsoft Teams instead of instead of WhatsApp, for example, yeah, yeah, yeah. or I, I, mean, I don't officially use WhatsApp for my courses here at the university, but I, I know my students will collect there. They'll collect in Discord and all these other places mm -hmm. that are not university supported. And so I might encourage them to go to Teams because it offers similar functionality or something along those, but why? Why would I encourage them to do that? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head inside your own question because it's supported. So where things are supported, we've actually done a whole load of work and read through all their security documentation and done architectural reviews and stuff. Certainly for the really big things, because the university is enormous and sprawling and the information security department is somewhat small. So occasionally we get individual little projects and whatnot who do fairly minor things who we might not get to do a full review of. But having that level of support means if something goes wrong, you can go to Helpline and go, ah, this went wrong, what do I do? And you have any hope of them being able to answer you and help you out. The minute you start branching out into doing your own thing, you're out there on your own. Now, that is not only just from a support perspective, but also from a security perspective. So if something does go wrong, you can't go, well, we had our team look at it and you know, the work was done and we analysed the risk and we did the right things. Yeah. And when the ICO come along with their big scary stick, it's on you. Mm, mm. <laughs> And that big scary stick is financial stick, isn't it, really, for penalties? Um, certainly financial and, and reputational. definitely reputational yeah. because every organisation that's had a fine levied on them by the ICO has come up in the press. Yeah. And okay. none of them have enjoyed that experience. Okay. And you see a lot of this happening in higher education as well, right? Um, we've seen it several times in higher okay. education. We've seen a few universities have breaches and get okay. pulled through. 
Interesting. I won't mention them at Google. No, of course. The <laughs> <universe> <laughs> reaches over without naming names. Two years will tell yeah. Without naming names. This, was, this was a, a, there is a precedent yeah. in higher education. This was the last podcast. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to sign off forever now. <laughs> so, so, so without airing my own industry's dirty laundry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just enough to hint at it. Yeah, that it, it does exist. Right? So, I, so I think um, we've talked about from a day, day dot about paper and pens and things being there and, and the involvement to the kind of state we are now and identification of, 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 of um, society and about education as well. So, and I think looking ahead, and, and, and I'm sorry, saying as well that information security and has now maybe was a peripheral thing that people would think about as an afterthought a couple of years ago yep. is now coming right into the core of, of technology adoption and um, in information services and things like that in university. So, you know, maybe in 10 years time, what do you think it will be like? Will it be, will we have tons and tons of legislation? We have a massive information security team that will be involved at the very beginning of any procurement policies or procurements any of, of, of technology or what do you think? In some industries, we already do. Okay. So in government, in finance, things have to go through an accreditor. If you want to do anything, it goes through your security accreditor. And if he's not happy, bang. Yeah. Mm. End of. So we don't have that here in quite the same way. We have a slightly softer touch where we'll go, these are the things you should think about, these are the things you can change. This is where we bring up the risk because we're more collaborative than combative. Yes. <laughs> Which is nice. <laughs> but yeah, I can see more of that coming in. There's certainly a big push for, um, for example, the Scottish government to have all the public sector have a standard information security framework we're all working towards. Mm -hmm. And the universities within Scotland fall within yeah, Scottish government says is the public sector for Scotland. Yes. So we will have to buy into that in some way. Mm -hmm. So yes, there will be more frameworks, there will be more legislation, there will be more things that we are expected to do and standards we are expected to achieve across the board. And things like central government units like the National Cyber Security Centre are pushing things such as the Cyber Essentials Programme going, unless you can get yourself a Cyber Essentials badge, government won't share data with you. Oh, wow. So... We will see more of this mm -hmm. mm. and we will see more efforts to correctly manage and audit and do all these things. Mm -hmm. That will lead to yet another really big push to try and get more people into information security. And I mean information security as a whole, not just the bit where it's like, yeah, I do penetration testing. I work in cyber. <laughs> I mean, the somewhat more uncool part of information security where people like me sit where you do architectural review and help yeah. people with procurement yeah <laughs> it all sounds sexy to me but i think that's no i think that's great and i think that's that's us for today i think it's a perfect place to end that yeah. was a good summary of everything so i suppose we'll end for now uh with those with those uh bits of wisdom to take away and to ponder a bit and we thank you david for thanks david for You're talking welcome. to us today so this is uh me signing off michael gallagher i'm miles blanning i'm david christen and until next time <laughs>